37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody, and welcome on back to episode 124 of Pixelated Paranormal, Abduction to the Ninth Planet, Part 2. Yay. Yeah, I can't wait to see what you've got in store for us this episode, Presto. Look at that, Isaac. Mm. Back to back, man. Back to back. Last one was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Well, I say we just, uh, we don't waste any time here, and let's knock out a couple news stories before we get into Chapter 2 of your epic tale. All right, it's all you. Hit me with it. First up, have either of you heard this conspiracy that climate activist Greta Thunberg is actually a time traveler? Yeah, somebody brought that up last week, but I didn't get the details. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so click on that article if you want and scroll through there. There'll be pictures. We'll post them on the Instagram. But basically, there's a photo circulating from right around 1898 that shows three children working in a gold mine on Dominion Creek in the Yukon Territory up in Canada. And if you zoom in on the girl on the bottom left, it looks an awful lot like Greta Thunberg, who's supposed to be nothing more than a 16-year-old climate activist. Ooh. And it's... I mean, you know, there's only so many facial structures you can have on normal average faces. So it's one of those cases of she just kind of has one of, you know, those seven or eight... Hmm facial structures it is fun and it is awfully compelling to look at there are some similarities and she's got that telltale you know long ponytail pulled over her left shoulder mm-hmm. it's just so hard to tell with stuff like this these days because of everybody's tech technological skills with photoshop and oh yeah dude most definitely most definitely is, yeah, that it's, you, it's pretty... is that why you titled it, I'd Like to Buy a Bullshit? <laughs> no, no, I started upside down, actually, to throw you off my scent. It okay. is kind of weird that <laughs> that girl's wearing the braid the exact way she wears that a lot of the time, too. Right, she wears that really super long single braid over one of her shoulders, awful, you know, uh, most times. And this girl in this picture is doing the same thing, so... That's crazy. I don't know. Like you said, there's all that deep fake shit. Like everybody now still thinks that Jim Carrey did an entire first act of The Shining. Yeah, look at this deleted scene. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It's it's a fun little uh, ditty to, you know, contemplate. But I'm pretty sure it's just a big joke. But the black and white picture is actually part of the University of Washington's actual photo archive, supposedly. So it is indeed not photoshopped. If you want to believe. Whoa. Oh, so not fake news. It goes all the way to the yeah. top, man. Maybe not. So I don't know. Very interesting. It's fun to entertain, at least. Well, Preston, you uh, you read the uh, headline I put on here earlier, drunk <laughs> enough to eat shit. <laughs> Have either of you been drunk enough to eat shit before? Nope. Nope. Okay, good. Because <laughs> the podcast is going to take a whole different turn. <laughs> well, what about drunk enough to drink shit? Mm, no. There's a brand new gin distillery that's infusing their gin with elephant dung. Oh, you know what? Uh, that's like that company a couple years ago that made that chocolate stout that was a brewed in a bat of elephant shit. Steve, do you know what the do you know what gin is distilled from? What piss? No, oh, juniper berries. Hmm? Okay, so it's already a rather sweet type of alcohol, <laughs> you know, being from the berries, but. 
Yeah. <laughs> so down in Mars, is there some tie into something paranormal with that? What? You're like, what is gin made out of? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And then you're like, and I'm like oh, most people don't know. Like, you know, oh. uh, vodka is uh, distilled from like a uh, almost like a potato wine. Brandy is distilled from regular wine. And uh, whiskey is a corn mash. And gin is uh, a, a distilled from juniper berries. The more you know. The more you know. Wow. <laughs> Alcohol hour brought to you by Pixelated Paranormal. <laughs> Down in Mossel Bay, South Africa. The makers of South African gin are infusing it with elephant dung, and they swear using the animal's excrement is not actually a gimmick. The creators of Inlavu Gin, Les and Paula Ansley, stumbled across the idea a few years ago when learning about how when elephants eat a variety of fruits and flowers, they only digest about a third of what they take in. So essentially, if you can imagine, they would eat a flower and then crap out, you know, their dung, and it would contain about two-thirds of an undigested flower. So they're taking the elephant feces, they are, you know, breaking it down into kind of a mash, then they take and they run it through a series of filters to get just, you know, the actual berries and fruits and flowers out of it, and then using that to actually um, infuse their gin. Hmm. And as gross as it sounds, it's actually pretty fascinating if you know a lot about infusing and distilling and brewing alcohol, because after the droppings are dried and crumbled, they wash them to remove the dirt and sand, and eventually all you have left is this really cool kind of fruit and flower mash. The botanicals are then sterilized and dried again, and then placed in an airing cupboard, kind of like a spice cupboard. And then after it's all said and done, they then use that to kind of... uh, infuse their gin and depending on the year the season and the location of the elephants the whole flavor profile can be completely different from you know one series of bottles to the next Hmm. so they actually go through and they label these with different you know dates as to um, you know when it was bottled and different uh, coordinates as to where the elephants were when they collected the dung huh so you might get something kind of rich with notes of like honey and roses or something like that. I mean, I'm just an example. <laughs> and then you might find that you get other notes of like oranges and cinnamon, depending where they're at on the continent. Well. So it begs the question, would you guys drink it? Well, yeah, I would, because um, during the distilling process, um, I mean, you're you know, it's going to be like a hundred percent sterile and no, yeah, you're boiling sh- it off. Yeah. yeah shit waters. Uh, mm-hmm. You're getting rid of all the shit water. So, I mean, yeah, I'd drink it. I would uh, taste it. I wouldn't drink. I don't drink, drink like that. I would taste it. Just be like, yes, it's an old fashioned boy. Then you might suck down a couple of them. Yeah. They're pretty good. <laughs> I wish I could have drank more of it. That sugar, man. Yeah. That beaties, the beaties, all beaties. Well, in the last little bit of news I have, that's also shitty. On a recent episode of Wheel of Fortune, a girl was screwed out of almost $10,000 worth of cash and prizes because of a technicality on the rules. So I still watch Wheel of Fortune. Do you guys watch Wheel of Fortune at all? Nope. I watch clips on Facebook. About it. Okay. You might want to go find this one here. Because basically, Kristen Shaw faced off against Brian Idler and Jesse Pankow, Pankow in the crossword game. And the words became very obvious, and it was Shaw's turn to read out the four words on the crossword. She said, right, left, Sally, 
and football and everybody freaks out yay she got him it's pretty obvious what the puzzle was well that actually violated the rules of wheel of fortune because they tell you in the very beginning only say the words on the screen do not add any word oh, only the four shit. words well because she said right football left and sally yeah. they had to disqualify her answer because she threw in a fifth word and so she lost $1,950 in cash and a trip to Nashville worth more than $8,000. Ooh. Wow. And then Idler, the following contestant, quickly read out the four and only four words to go on and win $3,550. Oh. And Pat Sajak says, most times I caution people not to add anything. And then you, you know, maybe didn't hear yourself say it, but you threw in yep. an and. Because it's proper Thus, grammar. We have to, yep, we have yep. to go by the rules. Yep. Gosh, I couldn't mm. even imagine the luck, man. I know, I'd be so pissed. <laughs> she walk away with any money at all? Uh, I don't know. I didn't read the rest of the article because I feel like those were the high notes. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's all I care about. Right, That's it. Well, speaking of other luck, Preston, why don't you go ahead and get us into chapter two? Yeah. Yeah, did you did you want to do a recap? Do you remember enough of what happened last mm, episode? I could do a recap, I think. Yeah. Some French guy named Michel living in Australia was abducted by aliens one night when they led him out to his garden and took him away to a far, far planet full of hermaphrodites. During this exciting trip, he also discovered that Fallout 76 also took place on some weird planet they went to observe, and everybody there was a bunch of, <clears throat> excuse the term, mongoloids. <laughs> uh, I think that about covers it, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah, good job. Sweet. And, you know, at the end of that episode, um, Dal, the hermaphroditic alien, took him to a room called the Hallis, which was kind of like a space, like a safe space uh, where they could talk in, you know, privacy and not be overheard. And, you know, it had the nice, like, little mood light and the settings. Anyways, <laughs> so she takes him in there and she basically says, you know, I'm going to tell you the history of your Earth because he had questions on, you know, why, you know, they use the Arabic, you know, system and measurements and things like that. And she said, well, that's because that's our measurement. We taught it to you Earth people. And she's like, well, this is a good time to, you know, give you a history lesson. So we are back for part two of Abduction to the Ninth Planet. Mm -hmm. And the bard of this tale has been on a wild ride. And, um, you know, he's on a ship of he-she's. He's witnessed shit from Fallout, like Sean said. And uh, really is on some kind of weird Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy type quest. He's got his towel. And... Yeah, and once comfortably reestablished in the Hollis, um, Dow begins her, you know, strange uh, tale. So he's, or do we say he or do we say she? It, the alien, starts uh, off by refer to it as Dow, I guess. All right, so the alien <laughs> Dow starts off by saying, Michelle, one point three million years ago, precisely on the planet Bacchorini. Of the constellation Centaur, a decision was made by the leaders of that planet following numerous conferences and uh, reconnaissance expeditions to send inhabited vessels to the planets Mars and Earth. As their planet was cooling down internally and would become uninhabitable within 500 years, they thought with good reason that it was prefer 
preferable to evacuate their people to a young planet of the same category. I must tell you that these people uh, were human, very intelligent and highly involved. A black race, they had thick lips, flattened noses, and frizzy hair, resembling in these ways the blacks now living on Earth. These people have inhabited, had inhabited the planet of Bacchaterini for 8 million years in cohabitation with a yellow-colored race. To be precise, this is what you would call on Earth the Chinese race, and they had inhabited Bacchaterini for 400 years prior to the blacks. The two, numerous, or the two races witnessed numerous revolutions during their time on the planet. We tried to provide relief, assistance, and guidance, but in spite of our intervention, wars broke out periodically. These, along with natural disasters occurred on the planet, served to thin the ranks in both races. Finally, a nuclear war broke out on such a grand scale that the entire planet was plunged into darkness and temperatures fell into minus 40 of your degrees Celsius. Not only did atomic radiation destroy the population, but cold and lack of food accomplished the rest. So take a quick minute here. Um, you know, this is really classic alien abduction, uh, talking about, you know, nuclear war and, you know, all the bad shit that happens with mm-hmm. it. And uh, we're entering this uh, fallout kind of world again. What is negative 40 degrees Celsius to Fahrenheit? Uh, pff, fuck, I don't know. Siri, that <laughs> You're shit. the scientist, not me. Steve, Google it. <laughs> Siri, that shit. Well, okay, so Fahrenheit, if zero degrees Celsius is 32 Fahrenheit, so roughly, you know, right about the freezing point. Right. So minus 10. Be like 14. living in Antarctica. I guess. Be, Negative 104. <laughs> Negative 104 degrees. Shit. Fire. Okay. Yeah. Really cold. Okay. Really cool. cold. <laughs> really fucking cold. <laughs> All right. So Dow goes on to say, It is a recorded fact that a mere 150 black people and 85 yellow people survived the catastrophe from a population of 7 billion black and 4 billion yellow humans. Following months of confinement in the darkness and intense cold, they were eventually able to risk going outside. The blacks ventured out first, finding almost no trees, no plants, no animals to speak of. It was a group isolated from their shelter in the mountains who first knew cannibalism. Because of lack of food, when the weakest died, they were eaten. Then, in order to eat, they had to kill each other, and that was the worst catastrophe on their planet. Another group near the ocean managed to survive by eating the only living things left on the planet, which were not too contaminated. That is, the mollusk and some fish and crustaceans. They still had unpolluted drinking water thanks to a very ingenious installation uh, enabling them to obtain water from incredible depths. Much the same course of events occurred in the Yellow Territory. So that, as I have said, 150 blacks and 85 yellows remained, and finally, deaths resulting from the war ceased, and reproduction began again. All of this occurred in spite of the warnings they had received. It should be said that before, this almost total decimation of both black and yellow race had obtained a very high level of technological advance. The people lived in great comfort. They worked in factories, private and government enterprises, Offices just uh, what you have on your planet. They had a strong devotion to money, which to some meant power, and to others, 
wiser, and meant well-being. They worked on average 12 hours per week. On back to Torini, a week com uh, comprises six days of 21 hours each. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huh. I mean, you know, I guess it's all about how the planet, you know, revolves around the sun. I mean, I'm all about working average 12 hours a week, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Easy peasy. <laughs> Let's go to back of Torini, man. Hit it up. <laughs> they tended to the material rather than the spiritual side of their existence. At the same time, they allowed themselves to be duped and led into circles by a structure of politicians and bureaucrats, exactly as what is happening now on Earth. Gradually, these two great races begin to envy each other, and there is only one step from envy to hate. Eventually, their hatred of each other uh, led so much that the catastrophe occurred. Both possessing very sophisticated arms, they achieved the mutual destruction. Our historical records show then that 235 survived the disaster, six of them being children. I speak to you of this 150 year period because this was when both races began to reestablish and when we were able to help them materially. What do you mean? Just a few hours ago, you saw our spacecraft stop above the planet Arimo X3 and take samples of soil, water, and air. Did you not? Uh, yeah. Then you watched as we quite easily annihilated a mass of giant ants as they attacked the inhabitants of the village. Indeed. In this particular case, we helped those people by intervening directly. You saw that they were living in a semi-wild state? Yes, but what happened on that planet? Atomic war, my friend. Always and eternally the same story. Don't forget, Michelle, that the universe is a gigantic atom and everything is affected by that. Your body is composed of atoms. My point is, in all the galaxies, each time a planet is inhabited, a certain stage in its evolution, the atom is discovered or rediscovered. Of course, the scientists who discovered it are very soon aware of the disgeneration of the atom can be a formidable weapon. And, at one moment or another, the leaders want to use it, just as a child with a box of matches is driven to set fire to a bale of straw in order to see what happens. But I digress. 150 years after the nuclear holocaust, we wanted to help these people. Their immediate need was food. Still, they were s s subsisting... God, I hate the way this guy writes. Anyways, <laughs> their immediate need was food as uh, they were resulting to cannibalism to satisfy their onboard yearnings. They needed vegetables and a source of meat. Vegetables, fruit trees, grains, animals, all that was edible had disappeared from the plant. There remained just enough inedible plants and bushes to replenish the oxygen in the atmosphere. At the same time, an insect resembling in some ways your praying mantis had survived, and as a result of spontaneous mutation caused by the atomic radiation, had evolved into gigantic proportions. It grew to about 8 meters in height and had become extremely dangerous to the people. So 8 meters, that's uh, almost like 8 feet tall. So that's a big fucking bug. Eight. Okay, hold on. No, your math is always... <laughs> Here we go. Eight, 8 meters uh -huh. can't be 8 feet. <laughs> so nine feet jesus christ hold on i'm getting it eight meters preston Do is roughly 26 feet jesus christ that's even that's a huge i said bug. that <laughs> yeah he's right god damn 
That's a big one. Uh, it's eight meters, so gotta be eight feet, right? <laughs> eight, eight, it's the same age room system. Yeah. Come on, <laughs> fucking alien! Awesome. <laughs> um, I'm gonna keep that that miscalculation in the alien voice too. <laughs> in addition, the insect, having no natural predator, reproduced rapidly. We flew over the planet, locating the whereabouts of these insects, and <laughs> space lasers. <laughs> nope. Next, we had to reintroduce livestock, plants, and trees on the planet according to the species known to have adapted climatically in specific regions before the catastrophe. This, too, was relatively easy. It must have taken years for such a task. <laughs> We're aliens. It took us two days and 21 hours. Our complex. And that is actually two days and 21 hours. <laughs> So we helped these people materially, but as often when we intervened, we did not allow our, our presence to be known, and there are several reasons for that. The first is security. The second reason is a psychological one. If we had made these people aware of our existence, and if they had realized that we were there in order to help them, they would passively have allowed themselves to be helped and would have felt sorry for themselves. This would have adversely affect their will to survive. The third and last reason is the main one. Universal law is well established, and it is strictly enforced as that which controls the planet's revolutions around their suns. If you make a mistake, you pay the penalty immediately in 10 years or in 10 centuries, but errors must be paid for. Thus, from time to time, we are permitted or even advised to offer a helping hand, but we are formally forbidden to serve meals on a plate. In two days, we repopulated their planet with several pairs of animals and reestablished numerous plants so that they, that eventually the people could raise the animals and cultivate the plants and trees. They had to start from scratch, and we guided their progress, either by dreams or by telepathy. At times, we did it by means of a voice coming from the heavens. That is to say, the voice came from our spacecraft, but to them, it came from heaven. Finally, after several centuries, the planet was almost as it had been before the nuclear holocaust. All the same, in some places, deserts had been finally established. In other spots less affected, the flora and fauna were easily developed. 150,000 years later, the civilization was successful, but this time, not only technologically. Knowing that there were other planets inhabited and inhabitable in the galaxy, they mounted one of the most serious exploratory expeditions. Eventually, they penetrated your solar system, first visiting Mars, which was known to be inhabited. The human beings on Mars had no technology, but by contrast, they were highly spiritual. They were very small people, measuring in height between 120 centimeters and 150 centimeters, and of mongoloid type. <laughs> and real quick, that is four to five feet tall. Yeah, so little midgets. They lived in tribes and in huts of stone. The fauna on Mars was scarce. There was kind of a dwarf goat, some very large hair-like creatures, several species of rats, and the largest animal resembled a buffalo but had a head like a tapir. The flora was also uh, poor, trees attaining no more than four meters in height. They had, they had too, an edible grass that you might compare with buckwheat. Like the, like the little rascal? I got a pickle. I got. A pickle. <laughs> I got a pickle. Oh. Hey, hey. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a farmer, so like as far as like alfalfa and buckwheat, I don't know the difference, but you know, it's a type of grain. The Bacchaterinians conducted their research, realizing soon that Mars was also cooling down at a rate which indicated that it would no longer be inhabitable in four to five thousand years. So peace out, Girl Scouts, and they left the M&Ms to their demise, and that's Martian midgets. <laughs> <laughs> or midget mongoloids. <laughs> oh. So the two spacecrafts headed for Earth. The first landing took place where Australia is now found. And at that time, it should be explained that Australia, New Guinea, Indonesia, and Malaysia were all part of one continent. I must say, to be more precise, that the black race chose Australia, and the yellow people established themselves where Burma is now here too, was a land rich in wildlife. Bases were quickly set up on the coast of the Bay of Bengal, which the black people constructed their first base on the shores of the inland sea in Australia. Later, further bases were established where New Guinea is presently located. Their spacecraft was capable of super light speeds, and it took approximately 50 Earth years to bring 600,000 blacks and the same number of yellow race to the Earth. This bears witness to the perfect understanding and excellent association between the two races determined to survive on a new planet and exist in peace. By common agreement, the aged and infirmed remain in back of terrain. Wow. So screw the sick and screw the old. <laughs> wow. So do the do do the two races do they ever cross populate? Hey, don't jump ahead, motherfucker. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. The Bacchaterinians had explored all of the planet Earth before establishing their bases and were absolutely persuaded that no human life existed before their arrival. Often, the, the, often they thought they had located a humanoid life form, but on closer inspection realized that they had made contact with the species of large apes. Bigfoot. <laughs> Gravity on Earth was stronger than on their planet, and it was quite uncomfortable initially for the two races, but eventually they adapted very well, so kind of like Superman. <laughs> In building their towns and factories, they were fortunate to import from Bacchaterini certain materials which were very light and at the same time very strong. At that time, Australia was on the equator. Earth rotated on a different axis, taking 30 hours and 12 minutes to complete a rotation, and achieved a, a revolution around the sun in 280 such days. So, you know, now we're at 364. <laughs> The equatorial climate was not as you will find it today. It was much more humid than now, for Earth's atmosphere had changed. Herds of huge zebras roamed the country, in company with enormous edible birds referred to as dodos. Very large jaguars and another bird measuring almost four meters in height, which you have called the gnomus. I've never heard of that bird, so I really don't know. Me neither, but it's like almost uh, 14 feet tall. Yeah. So, that must be like one of them weird dinosaur hybrid birds. Mm. In certain rivers, there were crocodiles up to 15 meters in length and snakes 25 to 30 meters long. Hell no. Fucking yeah. 50 foot long snakes. That's, and almost that's fucking anaconda. Yeah, it's like the right anaconda there. movie with Ice Cube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, crocodiles that were 50 feet long, snakes almost 100 feet long. Oh, hell no. Fuck. That's some Harry yeah. Potter shit. I ain't trying to fuck with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's correct. Oh, well, could you imagine? Oh. No. Nope. 
I'd be riding one of those denarius straight the fuck out of <laughs> Yeah, I'd like, yep. you go to the planet, <laughs> nope. Yeah, straight to no bill. <laughs> I think those denarises were like uh, chocoboos off of uh, Final Fantasy. Chocoboos. <laughs> Rob's going nuts right now. Anyways, the big fucking snakes and alligators nourish themselves on the new arrivals from time to time. Most of the flora and fauna on Earth was totally different from that on Bactrini, both from a nutritional and ecological point of view. So let's take some time to thank space black people for bringing us sunflower, maize, wheat, sorghum, uh, tapioca, and others. These planets either uh, these plants either didn't exist on Earth or existed in such a primitive state that they couldn't be consumed. The goat and the kangaroo were both imported uh, for the immigrants and were quite partial, uh, and they were quite partial to these, consuming them in great numbers on their planet. And let's not forget the space Asians. Let's take a moment and thank them for cabbage, lettuce, parsley, coriander, and some others. For fruits, they brought the cherry tree, the banana, and the orange tree. Did they also bring rice? To- what a racist thing to say. It's so <laughs> yeah. terrible. What the fuck would you ask that, Steve? Why would you ask if the space Asians brought rice to Earth? It's so you give up. the guy one solitary speaking part. He had five lines, and he just completely offends everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> All right, I'll do it over again. <clears throat> Right. I don't know. Normally, I beat Preston with this kind of embarrassment. I might just keep that in there. I'd keep it in there. Okay, you keep it in there. Fuck it. Did they? Did they also bring rice to the plane? I can't do it. It's so bad. Okay, go ahead. No, Steve, you racist. Rice is a plant absolutely native to Earth, but they did improve it. So materially, they were su- successful, but they were also careful not to neglect the construction of their immersed meeting halls, in which they practiced their cult. Wait, they had a cult? Oh, yes. They were all Takanani, which is to say they all believed in reincarnation, something in the way of present-day Lamanists do on your planet. There was much travel between the two countries, and they even combined efforts to explore deeper into certain regions of Earth. An African expedition comprised of 50 blacks and 50 yellows brought home elephants, tomatoes, and many mongooses, for they soon discovered the mongoose to be the mortal enemy of snakes. So, you know, you got 50-foot fucking snakes or 100-foot fucking snakes. And then you need some mongooses to take care of that. <laughs> got my mongoose right. bike. Yeah. Dude, got pegs Un- on that thing? <laughs> Unfortunately, they also brought, brought back with them without realizing it the terrible virus, which is now called yellow fever. In a very short time, millions of people had died without their medical experts even knowing how the sickness had spread. Eventually, the yellow people produced a vac- vaccine that was immediately made available to the blacks, a gesture that reinforced the bonds between friendship and the two races. What were they physically like? When they migrated from Bacchatrini, they were about 230 centimeters tall. They're women, too. They were a beautiful race. The yellow people were smaller in size, the average man measuring 190 centimeters, and the women 180 centimeters. Wow. So the first ones were about seven and a half feet tall and the yellow people. Okay. So sorry. I guess that was the, the, the black people were about seven and a half feet tall. Mm-hmm. And then the yellow people. So racist. were about <laughs> six foot tall. Yeah. So not bad. <laughs> Do I put a disclaimer at the beginning? I don't know, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, it just yeah. feels so weird saying the yellow people, the black. It's like, Oh my I God. Know. It's so bad. I mean, it's alien quotes. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's not us being racist. It's really the aliens. 
if I put, if I put a space filter on it, it's not going to be nearly as upsetting. Yeah. Right. But you said that the present day people are the descendants of those people. Why is it that they are now so much smaller? Gravitation, Michelle. Being stronger on Earth than on Vacaturini, both races gradually became smaller in size. Crossbreeding between the two races began. Thus, the first modern-day ancestor of humanity was born. What became of their planet? It cooled down as predicted and became a desert, much like Mars. What was their political structure like? Very simple. Election by raised hand of the leader of a village or district. These district leaders elected a town leader as well as eight old people chosen from among those. But this is not a political podcast, Michelle, so let's skip forward. <laughs> and so, all was going well for the inhabitants of the planet Earth, except for one thing. The astronomers and scholars were very worried, for an enormous asteroid was approaching Earth. It was first picked up by an observatory in Akarada, located in the center of Australia. After several months, it could be seen by the naked eye, provided one knew where to look, growing a most sinister, vivid red. Now, I'm going to pause in the story here. This is a very important part, uh, because in a lot of ancient uh, folklore, uh, there's always a uh, description of the, the sky dragon or the destructor, this event that wiped out all humanity. And they always mm. talk about it, uh, you know, filling the sky with fire or, um, you know, foreshadowing with this very vivid red in the sky. So there might be some truth to that. Hmm. Yeah. You fuck with Pangea? So- <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't that be the same thing? The the, the asteroid that hit Earth? Wiped out dinosaurs? Yeah. yeah okay. Oh, yeah. Could be. Yeah. Well, this would have been way before that, you know, yeah. the timelines, but. Could happen again. Yeah. In the weeks to follow, it became more readily visible. The governments of Australia, New Guinea, and Antarctica had made an important decision, which was soon agreed to by the Yellow leaders. Ahead of the inevitable collision with the asteroid, they agreed that all space vessels in a condition to fly would leave Earth, carrying on board as many specialists and experts as possible. So doctors, technicians, teachers, artists, etc., the kind most likely to be of service to the community following the catastrophe. Where were they going? To the moon? No, Michelle. At the time, Earth didn't have a moon. Their spacecraft was now capable of 12 weeks of autonomous flight. For a long time, their capability for super long distance travel had been lost to them. Their plan was to remain in orbit around Earth, ready to land as soon as possible and give assistance where it was most needed. In order to leave Earth's atmosphere and gravitational force quickly, it was necessary to make use of a warp, which at this time was above present-day Europe. In spite of the speed these space vessels were capable of, they had not quite made it to the warp when the asteroid hit Earth. When it entered the Earth's atmosphere, it had broken into three huge pieces. The smallest hit the Red Sea. Another, much bigger, hit where the Timor Sea is now, and the largest of the three landed in a region of the actual Galapagos Islands. The simultaneous impact was terrible. The sun became a dull red and slid toward the horizon like a falling balloon. Soon it stopped and climbed slowly, but only to half the distance it fell. The earth had suddenly changed in the inclination of its axis. Explosions of incredible force occurred, for two larger pieces of the asteroid had pierced Earth's crust. Volcanoes erupted in Australia, and New Guinea, Japan, South America, just about everywhere on the planet, mountains formed instantly and tidal waves 
more than 300 meters in height swept over four-fifths of Australia. Tasmania separated from Australia, and a huge portion of Antarctica sank in the waters, creating two immense underwater canyons between Antarctica and Australia. An enormous continent rose uh, from the waters in, central, in the center of, south, of the South Pacific Ocean. A huge piece of Burma subsided where the Bay of Bengal is now. Another basin of land subsided and the Red Sea was formed. Was there time for the spaceships to get out? Not quite, Michelle, for the experts had made one mistake. They had predicted the tilting of the Earth on its axis, but what they hadn't been able to predict was its oscillation. The spacecraft was literally caught in an anti-gravitational warp and dragged into the backwash caused by the re-entry of the asteroid into the, to the Earth's atmosphere. Further, they were bombarded by millions of particles coming from the asteroid and trailing in its wake. Only seven vessels, three with black passengers and four with yellow, struggling with all the power they could manage, succeeded in escaping from the horror occurring on Earth. It must have been a frightening sight for them to watch Earth change before their eyes. How long did it take for the continent you mentioned in the Pacific Ocean to emerge? Merely a matter of hours. This continent was raised by a gaseous belt resulting from upheavals occurring as deep as the center of the planet. The upheavals on the Earth's surface continued for months. And this, in the three points of impact of the asteroid, thousands of volcanoes were created. Poisonous gases spread all over most of, us, of the Australian continent, causing painless deaths in minutes of millions of people. Our statistics indicated that almost a total annihilation of humankind and animals occurred in Australia. A count taken uh, when calm was restored indicated a mere 180 people had survived. The poisonous gases were the cause of this fright toll. In New Guinea, where less gas had drifted, there were fewer deaths. I've been wanting to ask you a question. Go on. When we gonna fuck? <laughs> <laughs> okay, <hold on. laughs> you said that it was the black. <laughs> oh, I hate! I hate doing this. It feels so awkward. Okay. <clears throat> you said that it was the black people from Australia who spread to New Guinea and Africa. How is it then that now the Aborigines are so different from the blacks throughout the world? Excellent question, Michelle. My count should have included more detail. You see, as a result of the catastrophe, there had been such an upheaval that deposits of uranium scattered on the surface of Earth and emitted a strong radiation. This happened only in Australia, and those who escaped death were badly affected, just as in an atomic explosion. They were genetically affected so that today the genes of Africans are different from those of the Aborigines. Further, the environment totally changed, and their diet drastically altered too. With the progress of time, these descendants of the Bacchatarines were transformed into the aboriginal race of today. As the upheavals continued, mountains were formed, some suddenly, others within days. Crevices opened, swallowing entire towns and then closing, removing all traces of the existing civilization. On top of all the horror, there was a deluge such as the planet had not known for eons. In fact, the volcano spat so many ashes into the sky simultaneously into such an incredible altitude that the sky darkened. The vapor from the oceans, which in places actually boiled over an area of thousands of square kilometers, combined with the clouds of ashes, the thick clouds thus created burst with rain so uh, torrential you would find it hard to imagine. And the vessels orbiting in space? After 12 weeks, they were obliged to return to Earth. 
They chose to descend over the area we know, now know as Europe, having absolutely no visibility over the rest of the planet. One of the seven vessels was the only one who managed to land. The others were hurled into the ground by gales which occurred over the planet, uh, cyclone-like winds of three to 400 kilometers per hour. The main cause of these winds was uh, differences in temperature. In turn, this caused a sudden volcanic eruption, so the sole remaining spaceship managed to land in what is now called Greenland. There were only 95 yellow passengers on board, many of whom were doctors and experts of various kinds. Having landed in extremely adverse conditions, damage, was, damage occurred which made it impossible for the vessel to take off again. However, it remained useful for shelter. They had provisions enough to last a long time, so they organized themselves as best as they could. About one month later, they were engulfed in an earthquake. The spacecraft, too. God, these guys can't catch a fucking break. Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> I'm just like picturing this like if this was like an animation or a movie. This shit just is so intense. Yeah. Spoiler. Everyone dies. <laughs> Game over, man. So about one month later, they were all engulfed in an earthquake that and the spacecraft, too. And it was with this last catastrophe that all trace of civilization on Earth was destroyed. The chain of catastrophes that followed the collision with the asteroid had dispersed entire populations, including New Guinea, Burma, China, and in Africa, although the region of the Sahara suffered to a lesser extent than elsewhere. However, all the towns established in the Red Sea uh, area were all engulfed by the newly formed sea. In brief, no city remained on Earth, and millions of people and animals had been wiped out. It was therefore not long before widespread famine occurred. And that's it. That's the end of uh, part two, uh, because after that, uh, she takes uh, Michelle to the Golden Planet, and he finds out his true mission and purpose in life. Wow. Is Golden Planet yeah. coy for something? No, it's it's just it's called the Golden Planet. Because You're teasing the listeners, uh, Preston. Yeah, you've given yeah, them the bait in part one. And now you drag a lot it of rainfall there, and they refer to them as golden showers. Actually, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of peep peep. Well, hell yeah, man. And now yeah. this is all just one book, right? Yeah, this is all just one book. That's so crazy. That's cool. And this oh, was yeah. one extremely large chapter of information. Golly, no doubt. Well, what's crazy to me is like, how many books does this guy have written? Do we know off the top? Uh, four, I think. Four. So the only thing that gives me trouble with this is like, and I had the same problem with Communion. Communion's a fantastic book. This mm -hmm. book is a lot of fun too. But then I wonder like, where does the line blur in these stories if we want to believe that the first books really happened? Like Communion really happened. This abduction right. really happened. So, like, what do we have to just automatically believe the following, you know, four or five novels happened as well? Or is it like, okay, now I should really just embellish this story and, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened and this happened and this happened? That's let's, the only trouble I have. Let's, uh, let's look up and see real quick. I mean, it's not that I don't want to believe in this stuff, but it does kind of give me a little bit of a problem. And it's like, fuck, all right. Now, in, in chapter, you know, in, in book four, this happened. Because <laughs> I think we, we'll cover communion one day, but I think it gets to the point where Whitley believes that maybe he was, like, involved in a government-funded kidnapping where he went to a special school. Hmm. 
late night for like gifted children and shit like that, midnight yeah. school or whatever. So let's uh, so let's break down his books real quick to see if there's uh, you know a connection because I mean Strieber's books all kind of connect. They're like one big, you mm-hmm. know, giant ongoing story. So Michelle Desmarquette wrote a book in 2018 called Nature's Revenge, the best ecological novel ever written. And uh, the premise for that book is scientific studies have shown that plants are telepathic and communicate with each other. If we could only hear them, we would know what they could feel when they are in danger. And what is the threat? We humans. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Wow. In 1996, he wrote a book called She and I. In 96, he wrote that. Okay. Yeah. Now, when was Abduction to the Ninth Planet? 93. Oh, okay. So it wasn't too far apart then. No, but this one doesn't have a description on what it's about. It just has like, um, on the front cover, it's got a naked lady standing inside a bigger purple body with a little alien embryo in it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Then let's see. He wrote another book in 97 called He the Uvia, which also doesn't have a description on what the fuck it's about. <laughs> gotcha. So, yeah, I don't know. He, he really knows how to just rope you in, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Great job on that, dude. I can't wait to uh, finish things up with chapter three. Yeah. Cool. All right, fun. Steve, why don't you go ahead and jump in and uh, do a little bit of Reddit Sweet. Yeah. Tales of Terror before we get out of Indeed. here. Indeed, from the subreddit Paranormal Encounters. This is by user Not So Scary Studios. Hmm. Okay, uh, I've not read this yet, but it sounded pretty cool, and it's a kind of a short one. So, have you seen a Mickey Mouse? Ooh. Have you guys seen a Mickey Mouse anywhere other than Disney Plus? <laughs> uh, I just saw a girl on Instagram got a tattoo of Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse kissing, like right before what? we recorded. So synchronicity, yeah. what up? Uh, let's see. So it says, <laughs> "Hi, I'm new to the subreddit, and I wanted to see if anybody else had seen what my friends and I have seen in the past few years. Once, a few years back, I drew a picture of a Mickey Mouse. I don't know why, but I made the eyes red. I also wrote something about a curse." I passed it to the kid next to me who scoffed and told me that it was all fake and that curses aren't real. In the next few days, he had suddenly broken his arm after falling off the swings and stopped talking to pretty much everyone. He moved away soon after and no one heard from him since. A few years passed and I had practically forgotten him after a while, until my friend brought up something that she had seen on the playground of her school just around the same time. She was on the playground waiting to use the monkey bars when she saw two masked figures. They looked humanoid, but they had something about them wasn't quite right. They're not the right human look. She couldn't remember exactly what the first one looked like, but the second one was a Mickey Mouse with red eyes. They pushed a kid off the monkey bars and he broke his leg. Or, yeah, they pushed a kid off the monkey bars and he broke his leg. The kid told everyone he had fallen, but my friend knew the truth. We shared stories and found similarities. It was all around the same time with the same Mickey Mouse thing. And in both stories, the kid affected by it broke a bone. I have no clue what happened to either of these kids. Is this coincidence, or am I, or am I the reason why that boy broke his arm? Mm. Wow, that's some like, uh, oh, what was that called? Uh, Channel Zero type shit. Yeah. Oh, I guess it is from. Uh, <laughs> I guess it is from Reddit, isn't it? Yeah. 
It's all weird shit, you know? It's cool. Yeah, I like it. I like yeah. taking a chance of reading these, and it's either like, oh, this is interesting, or this is shit. <laughs> right. It's it's fun to go into a blind, I think. Yep. It's like a blind bag, blind box. <laughs> Never know what you're going to get. Uh, hey, guys, what's up? This is a uh, Reddit story unboxing video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Awesome. Cool. Well, I think that just about does it. We've had wild time-traveling thornberries, uh, shit gin, and then uh, semi-borderline racist alien stories. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yep, cool. All right. Well, let's plug some stuff and get out of here. Steve, what you want to plug? Check out our Facebook page, Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Check out our Instagram, PXL Paranormal. You can check me out on Instagram, B-I-G-S-T-3-P-H-3-N, and you can find me at that on everything. So check it out. Sweet. And check out Mark's solo podcast, Pixelated Sausage. Check out his Attack the Backlog. Check out everything we've got on the Pixelated Sausage Network, and uh, 13 Nightmares should be dropping, I'm hoping, by next week. Hopefully, yeah. Should be able to have that first one up, so... And then if you'd like, give me a follow on Instagram, Sean Swope, S-W-O-P-E, all one word. Check out some of the art I'm doing if that's what you're into. And uh, check out our Instagram for the show as well, PXL Paranormal, where you can find all the companion photos for most of our episodes. Presto, what do you got, man? Well, as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, if you want to grow a beard that has a product in it without elephant shit, Check out BigDobsBeardMom.com where he uses all natural and organic stuff that's like 100% not elephant. And use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order for such succulent scents as sweet tobacco, citrus, Dundee cedar, bay rum, classic fresh mint. Oh my. (laughs) Uh, Also check out our friends over at GunslingerSoap.com and check out... Hani and Seneca CD trade post. Go in there, say hi to Leslie. Grab yourself some great flicks on DVD and Blu-ray while you're in there. Otherwise, I think that about does it. I'd like to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown, Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.